When I worked at camp, uh, back when I was a kid working at camp, one of my best friends was Jackie. Uh, Jackie is a godly lady, and she married a, a godly, really smart guy named Charles. Uh, as we have become acquainted, uh, Jackie's husband Charles and I realized that we differ in, in many ways. Uh, here's just a few. Charles earned his doctorate at Lancaster University in the UK, which we all know is far inferior to Middlesex University in London, where I got mine. Um, <laughs> Charles is an Episcopal rector. I praise God that I don't have to deal with those politics. Um, he teaches theology to college students. I get to teach Bible. Uh, and Charles wears a priestly collar all the time. I mean, I really think he sleeps in it. By contrast, I don't sleep. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I, I, don't, uh, I don't enjoy vestments at all. And I'm sure the list goes on and on, but I want to show you a much more important list. These are the areas where Charles and I agree, just a few of them. Charles and I are each in awe of the Lord's universal eternal church. We both love the local assemblies, the temporal expressions of God's church. And we are, each of us are wowed by the incredible calling that is given to God's church. In fact, Charles wrote, Dr. Erlinson wrote a, a really delightful book about it called Love Me, Love My Wife. Isn't that nice? Ten reasons Christians must join a local church. Now tell me, which is more important, the list of our divergences or the account of our agreements? Which is more important? Yeah, the agreements. The differences matter. They're important, but nothing matters as much as the wonder of God's church and its mission. Of course, in response to that, I know what you're thinking in your, um, in your British doctoral program director voice. Uh, you're saying, well, what's so wonderful about the church? Hmm? I thought you would ask that. And so I made that, uh, I took that and made that the headline in our notes. Um, online, uh, if you're studying with us online, you can, you can look there uh, on, the, on the webpage. You can find it. You guys in the auditorium can open it up. In your notes, you'll see that big headline, what's so wonderful about the church? It's a great question. There are quite a few things. We're going to go through them kind of rapidly, but I want you to follow these. They, they're all built. Here's the biggest idea. They're all built on this big idea. The church of Jesus is eternally new. Eternally new. Look up here. Colossians chapter 3, 17 through 18. He, meaning Jesus, is before all things. And by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. This is part of a paean of praise that begins the Colossian letter. It's not only beautiful poetry, it contains powerful theology. I want you to look at some of the words. Look up here, the word beginning. Paul uses the Greek term arche, or arche, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, arche came into Latin uh, as arch. Um, meaning number one, like your arch enemy, my arch enemy. That's, that's, that's how we use it. Um, and and, and that's, that's wonderful, but that's not what arche means. Jesus is the top. He is the number one. He is the arch. But arche is deeper. Here's what it signifies. Get this. It signifies something that creates and recreates without itself ever being created. It's a word for perpetual motion. It's eternal recreation stretching back and forth forever. The resurrected Jesus is the head of his church, and his nature is to be the arche, the, the ever-creating one. Think about it. Just as his physical body is resurrected and perfected, right? 
So Jesus is by nature, it's who he is, by nature he is always recreating and perfecting his churches. The church of Jesus will constantly be renewed. Its forms will morph, they will grow, they will change. They have to because the church is ruled over by the arcade, the, the creator, the, the recreator. And that flexibility, listen carefully, that flexibility is rooted in the unchanging nature of Jesus. All right? I mean, look at that tree. You see a tree? It, it looks very, very different, but its nature is it's the same tree in every season. Jesus cannot and will not stop being Lord. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Just because he has a resurrected body right now in heaven doesn't mean his nature is any different than it was when he had a body on earth. And just because he had a physical form on earth, that doesn't mean his nature was any different from who he is in eternity past as the pre-incarnate God the Son. This explains why Jesus' church never, ever, ever goes away. It always adapts. It always changes every season because it is grounded in the unchanging nature of Christ. Think about it. The Romans tried to wipe out Jesus' churches. Roman Empire doesn't exist. The church still does. Same thing for the Vandals, a number of the French kings, the Mongols, the Soviets, South American Marxists, and the list just goes on and on and on and always will. There are so many that have tried to destroy the church of Jesus. They have all failed. They always will because in him all things hold together. All God's people said... Turn your Bible to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, here's how Jesus summarized the staying power of his church, his, his body of believers. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, first book of your New Testament, chapter 16, go to verse 16. Simon Peter answered, Jesus had been asking questions, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Matthew 16 brings up another point. The, the church is a new kind of assemblage. Look at verse 18. It includes a massive reformation of this word, ecclesia. It's your fancy word for the day, boys and girls. On the count of three, you get to say ecclesia. One, two, three. Ecclesia. ecclesia. Now, before this, before Matthew 18, uh, ecclesia, what we translate church, it was used of things like, like protests uh, or, or voting assemblies. They were organic. They were somewhat disorganized. Um, what Jesus describes is something new. Look, his assembly is something he's going to build himself. That means he will invite the attendees. He will provide the program. He will oversee the gathering. This is a whole new world. On the rock of Jesus' statement about Jesus being Messiah... A gathering is going to be established in Jesus. It's a totally new thing. In fact, we still struggle with the concept today of what is the ecclesia, partly because of how it translates into our English language ears. Um, Jonathan Lehman explains. Look at this. Our English Bible uses church to translate ecclesia, but the English word bears a much broader, more complicated range of meaning and resonance. Where ecclesia possessed the clarity of assembly, Church is a more elastic word containing 2,000 years worth of accumulated institutions and associations. One of the first translations of the English Bible, translators of the English Bible, William Tyndall, therefore translated ecclesia as congregation. And here he quotes Tyndall. Um, Tyndall wrote it this way, And upon this rock I will build my congregation. 
close quote. Tyndall's idea, I think, is much better than our word church. Church comes from an old German word for Christ. But however we translate it, the point is for us to see ecclesia anew, the way that Jesus' disciples would have heard this when he first spoke it in Matthew 18. This is a new thing. It is, it is overseen by a head who builds it. It didn't just organically happen. This ever new congregation will not be overpowered ever. In fact, this, this new thing that Jesus builds is, is so amazing, it cannot be described in just one image. God paints many different pictures of ecclesia. Look, I'm just going to show you a few. There are so many. But in the New Testament, here's a few of the pictures of ecclesia. The, the ecclesia is the body of Christ. You think about that? Dear believer in Jesus, you are actually part of the very body of Jesus Christ made up of you. It is Jesus' flock, the Bible says, is a shepherding image. We are his sheep. We're called the bride of Christ, the fellowship of saints. Everybody who believes in Jesus is a saint, a holy one. And this one is particularly overwhelming. We are the city of God. I want you to look for a few seconds at these diamonds. Look, look at these diamonds. Absolutely stunning. As the, every single second, there's a, there's a different view, a different image, a different facet that is presented for you. It's dazzling. That is a little bit like the way God sees his churches. His churches are assemblies of unique color and carrot weight that they dazzle, they dazzle from every angle. They are brilliant. And one facet, one image just doesn't do them justice. The church is beautiful. It is ever new. It is a new kind of assembly. And, and, and Jesus' church incorporates a new way of leading. Flip over a few pages to Matthew 20. You're in chapter 16. Turn to the east just a few pages to Matthew 20, and let's read verses uh, 24 through 28. When the ten disciples heard this, and you're saying to yourself, self, there are 12 disciples at this point. You're right. It's gonna, what's going to explain to you here is that two of them have set themselves apart. Um, James and John have gotten into a, a bit of a fix. You see, what they've done, now you need to remember, it's very, very likely, in fact, I was almost certain that all these guys are teenagers at this time, with the possible exception of Peter. James and John have gotten their mommy, and their mommy has come to Jesus and said, Let my son sit in the place of highest honor in your kingdom on your right and your left side. That's how she spoke. I don't know if you know that. And, um, and, and James and John, uh, of course, when word gets out about this, they're rather unpopular with their, their buddies. All right. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your what, everybody? Servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, and here he points to himself, did not come to, serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a new way of leading. Um, this kind of leading has been dubbed servant leadership. It is transformative. In fact, one of the wildest changes in the last hundred years, I think, is how so many non-Christian people have recognized the value of servant leadership. It, they, they may not have fully come to the party, but they at least recognize that we've got something really good going on here. Um, let me give you a representative example. Um, it's an article from a few years ago by uh, Mark Tarlow. Uh, really good article. He says, servant leaders are a revolutionary bunch. They take the traditional 
power leadership model and turn it completely upside down. This new hierarchy puts the people or employees in a business context at the very top and the leader at the bottom charged with serving the employees above them. And that's just the way the servant leaders like it. That's because these leaders possess a serve-first mindset, and they are focused on empowering and uplifting those who work for them. They are serving instead of commanding, showing humility instead of brandishing authority, always looking to enhance the development of their staff members in ways that unlock potential, creativity, and sense of purpose. The end result? Here's how he wraps up. Performance goes to the roof, says Art Barter, founder and CEO of a couple of different organizations. Magic happens, agrees Pat Filatico, a former executive leader at IBM. Magic. They call it, they call it a mine. They call it magic, right? We call it obeying Jesus. Jesus commands his church members to adopt a, a whole new way of leading. It's just stunning. It's revolutionary. We're going to go back over these in a moment, so don't don't worry about getting lost. Let me just show you a couple more. The church also possesses a miraculous new message. Look up here. Mark chapter 16. Later he, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to the eleven. And now you're saying to yourself, self, wait a minute. You said there were twelve disciples. Now why are there eleven? Well, one of them betrayed him and he's now committed suicide. It's very, very sad. All right. Uh, later he, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he'd risen. Then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Jesus gives this great commission to share the good news or, or gospel. The gospel is that the Messiah died and is resurrected. The Abrahamic covenant from way, way back that is finally spreading God's salvation by faith to all who trust Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. You know, Jesus' resurrection is a miracle. It's a miracle. He was totally dead and he is alive. It's proven by hundreds of witnesses. It is verified by sound logic and prophecy. And yet, have you ever noticed this? This is so strange. The natural human being has a really hard time with miracles. And so we make up our own miracles to counterbalance our lack of belief in the transcendent. It, it works like this. Um, the resurrection is a true miracle, right? It is an example of what scientist Ralph Brown would call um, God piercing our time-space cocoon. That's a miracle. But what we prefer to dub miraculous, all right, are things that we can control, things like our behavior, or we think we can control. So, so we call, in the, in the quote we just read, we call servant leadership miraculous. It's not miraculous. It's nice. Is wonderful. It's not a miracle. But we consequently, continually rule out as nonsense evident miracles because they're beyond our kin. Despite all the evidence, we refuse to accept anything that is transcendent. Instead, we make up our own things and call them miraculous. Here's what's so sad. That attitude makes it impossible for us to share our miraculous new message of the gospel. It does. The upshot is deadly. Not only for individual souls, it's deadly for a culture. 1994, Ravi Zacharias gave a message titled, If the Foundations Be Destroyed. Um, let me explain. No, take too long. Let me sum up. Here's a summary written by, uh, by David Wade, one of my pulpit team partners. He wrote this. Zacharias stated that the loss of belief in the transcendent erodes a foundation of culture. Without the truly miraculous, humans can only resort to existentialism. 
that inevitably leads to meaninglessness, hopelessness, and despair, close quote. If you doubt him, just read Camus. Our new miraculous message is that Jesus is alive, and that makes all the difference. Look at C.S. Lewis's statement. Um, I put it atop the right side of your notes. Look at the top of the right side of your notes. In God in the Dock, C.S. Lewis says, The Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, which is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe, and rose again, bringing nature up with him. It is precisely one great miracle, close quote. Speaking of miracles, here's another of the things that makes Jesus' church so wonderful. We possess a new way of understanding, a way of understanding provided by God's Spirit. Listen, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, have we not received, now, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God. So that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things. And by the way, in the context, these things are wisdom about church unity. We speak wisdom about church unity, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. The Bible, friends, is just a book, or rather a collection of books. When a person doesn't trust Jesus, they can read the Bible, but it only makes a surface kind of sense, right? There's no real understanding for the person who is not grafted into Jesus' eternal church. But after trusting Christ, every single Christian is granted the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And the the text then becomes illuminated in ways that were never understood before. A friend of mine wrote me a letter. This serves as an excellent example, I think. He said, Wayne, as a child and young teen, I attended Sunday school morning and evening went to training union and vacation Bible school. I memorized much scripture, which made me very good at sword drills. That's old things before handheld Bibles and you could, uh, you know, you didn't look them up electronically. You had to find a spot. He said, yet the Bible was nothing more than another book to me. Then in my 40s, God graciously brought me to himself by faith and, of course, put the Holy Spirit in me. Suddenly, it was though a veil was lifted. A light was turned on and the Bible came alive. Okay, one last thing that is wonderful about church. We experience a new kind of community. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 describes it. God is faithful. You were called by Him into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You, if you're a believer in Christ, you have fellowship with Jesus the Lord. And, and this is not merely an individual thing. A Christian also has communal fellowship with other Christians. That's why Philippians chapter 2 commands this. If then there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in the Spirit, intent on one purpose. All right, let's deal with some really significant terms here. Do you see if uh, repeated in Philippians 2.1? Every one of those ifs in Philippians 2.1 is a first-class condition. Okay, let me just summarize this way. A first-class condition is a way of writing in Greek that means it operates as a since, not an if. Um, It's something we don't use if for in English, but in Koine Greek, this kind of if meant something certain. All right? Speaking of Koine Greek, the big idea in each passage is this word, fellowship. The word is koanonia. Uh, you get to say koinonia on the count of three. Koinonia. One, two, three. Koinonia. Very good. 
Koinonia denotes uh, participation with a real bond. It's usually translated giving or fellowship or participation. I don't want to bore you, but this is so important. I think we should hear from an expert here. So we will refer to Dr. Hauk. Koinonia is a favorite term to describe the living bond in which the Christian stands. To be a Christian is to have fellowship with God, Father, Spirit, and Son. It issues in brotherly fellowship of believers. The believer's communion with Christ consists in mutual abiding, which begins in this world and reaches into the world to come where it finds its supreme fulfillment. Close quote. I was talking about this in Germany one time. I was teaching about this stuff, and a guy came up to me afterward, and, and he said, um, you know, this koinonia is nothing special. It's the same as our German with Gemeinschaft. And the idea is everywhere. We even have a bank named for it, which they do, Gemeinschaft Bank, now called GLS Bank. I appreciated his observation, but I told him, I'm sorry, I have to disagree with you. And, and here's why. Here's what I said to him. It's not the same. Gemeinschaft Bank is a fellowship. It is a co-op. But you have to buy your way in by depositing money there. See? For the same reason, there is no example in all of human experience, there is no example of fellowship that is the same as Christian koinonia. Um, Let's just go through history real quickly. The, The ancient Stoics. They had a form of fellowship they called koinonia, but it was earned behavior. You got to earn the right to live up here. That was a Stoic idea. The cynics said they practiced koinonia, but it wasn't like ours at all. First of all, they had no God. The cynics had no belief in the transcendent. And, and they would only relate to each other if that person was in imitation of nature. By the way, they never explained exactly what that meant. It sounds kind of horrifying to me, uh, but, um, but imitation of nature was the price for koinonia. Even the Hebrew, even the Essenes who were Hebrews, they didn't understand true fellowship. You know what the Essenes did? They took koinonia as a communist idea where every person was involuntarily required to give everything up for the community. Stalin would have applauded them. Jesus, interestingly, Jesus did not. Koinonia is a new thing. It is a decidedly Christian thing. It's not earned. We don't earn it. It's just a wonderful reality that by faith, as ones who are bound with God, we are redeemed community with each other. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Of course, that brings up, I know, the, the other question in your, uh, in your other British professor imitation, you're saying, well, if it's so wonderful, then what keeps us from enjoying this church of Jesus? Hmm? Great question. Thank you for asking. I see three big problems, three big problems that keep us from enjoying the wonder of church. First one is consumerism. It's very fashionable for preachers to lament how people all act like consumers. Uh, I don't know how many times, many, many, many times I've had pastors say to me, people just, they don't engage in the wonder of redeemed community. Wayne, they just want some program or they just want something shallow to tickle their ears. And there may, there may be some truth in that, folks. There may be. But here's the big problem. The big problem is it almost always starts in the pulpit, not in the pew. This is hard for somebody who does what I do, but listen to this observation. Churches feel they must not needlessly run counter to the social ideas which generally prevail. All the American clergy know and respect the supremacy expressed by the majority. They readily adopt the general opinions of their country and their age, and they allow themselves to be borne away without opposition in the current feeling and opinion, close quote. In other words, the pastors 
are the consumers of the general ideas of the age. Isn't that painful? Oh, by the way, guess what? Anybody recognize that quote? It's not from our 21st century. That was written in 1836. That was written in 1836 by Alexis de Tocqueville, one of the, one of the most insightful students of the United States in his democracy in America. Sadly, things have not improved in 200 years. When the preacher is committed to just go with the cultural flow instead of reaching out with redeemed community to influence that culture, what happens? Well, the congregation, of course, becomes just like that. They become more and more consumerist, more and more like the spirit of the age. Again, C.S. Lewis nails it. Um, and his screw tape letters, screw tape letters are one of my favorite books, series of letters from the senior demon Wormwood, writing to screw tape, the minor tempter. And, um, and in the screw tape letters, Wormwood says this to screw tape Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic, or God wants him to be. A pupil, close quote. A critic instead of a pupil. Thank goodness we're not like that. <laughs> Second barrier to enjoying God's church is worry, absorbing worries, overwhelming worries. Worry is a thorn in the flesh of nearly every Christian. We get so concerned about things, often very good things, that we become insensate to the wonder of our redeemed community. I just want to give you a few examples. Um, just after college, I was a Sunday school teacher in my local church, and I, I studied, I labored so hard for those lessons, I was absolutely terrified that I was going to teach heresy. Um, and, I, and I really wanted to do a great job for the students that I was teaching. Now, that's, that's not bad. Those things are fine, but not if they take the wonder out of church. I was so worried about the lesson every week that I... I didn't actually enjoy church, or at least not nearly as much as I should have. Maybe your worry is a little different. Maybe yours is much more legitimate. Maybe you've got a very serious allergy or, or a terminal illness or, or there is a very serious thing in your life that is very real. And that's, that's understandable. But here's what's happened. You've become so absorbed with that that you can't even enjoy the gathering. Your self-isolation harms your experience of koanania. Many, many times I've seen people turn sour because they were so engrossed with worry. This is especially true if they are, if they are concerned about some cause. Um, now, the causes can be great. They often are. Politics, prayer, mental illness, evangelism, justice, homelessness, abuse, etc., etc., ad nauseum, ad infinitum. The problem is these poor people will not subvert their cause to the greater truth, which is that we are one body in Christ. Everybody does not have to share the same bent. There is amazing diversity in Jesus' church, and they all will not, they must not march to your drum, nor should you bow down to their agendas. We must not remain so absorbed with our fear and our passion that we lose sight of the bigger picture. The awesomeness of Jesus' church should always overwhelm us. All right, now let's look at it again. All that stuff we went through and you thought, oh my goodness, I'm getting lost. Let's just go through it again. Here's what should overwhelm us. Here's what should be over any and all of our wonderful causes. The church of Jesus Christ is eternally new. That's amazing. It is eternally new. Arche leads it. A new kind of assemblage in ecclesia. 
a new way of leading in servant leadership. The, the church of Jesus offers a, a miraculous new message that the Messiah has died for us and resurrected from the dead. We have a new way of understanding by God's Spirit. And we have a new kind of community in Koanania. This truth about the church should provoke wonder in us, a wonder that, that grants us much-needed perspective. Our personal causes can be super, but they are never primary. If you forget that, if you forget that, you will become so worried that you will miss the forest for the trees. Snoopy has the right idea. <clears throat> 1966, January of 1966, America was really, really looking dark in many ways. In fact, it was very similar to this time period. Um, and Snoopy is dancing. Charles Schultz wrote this, he, he wrote this strip. He is dancing and having a great time. And Lucy says, how can you be happy when you don't know what this year has in store for you? Snoopy stops. She says, don't you worry about all the things that can happen. And now Snoopy starts walking, looking all worried and sad. She says, that's better. Live in dread and fear. Be sensible. And Snoopy, after a couple steps, goes, hey, <laughs> and he starts dancing again. <clears throat> what keeps us from enjoying and laughing? What keeps us from enjoying God's churches, from dancing in the wonder of it all? Worry does. Worry does. Be like Snoopy. Consumerism keeps us from the wonder of God's church. And a third thing, wasting time. We lose sight of how to best use our time, and that will steal wonder from us. The chairman of our elders, uh, Paul Hahn, he recently shared with the board a book review that he had written. The book was on the shortness of life by uh, Roman Senator Lucius Seneca. Seneca lived roughly the same time as the Apostle Paul. He was a Stoic, and as far as we know, Seneca never trusted Jesus. However, he had some really great insights about a number of things, especially wasting time. Now, here's his thesis. Look at this. Seneca says, it's not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. Men trifle with the most precious thing in the world, time. Now, he develops that idea with these categories of how we waste time. And when we waste time, we lose the ability to wonder. First thing that he says wastes our time is greed. Seneca says, people are possessed by greed that is insatiable. By the way, 900 years before that, Solomon, I think, put it better. Ecclesiastes 5, he said, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Seneca goes on with his list of time wasters. Uh, his second great time waster is missing the present. This, this will take wonder from you. Look what Seneca said. When will this year be over? 2,000 years ago. Same thing. When will this year be over? When shall I be rid of them? When will the vacation time come? Everyone hurries his life on and suffers from a yearning for the future and a weariness of the present. Oh, that's well said. A few years before this, the author of Hebrews commanded Christians, but encourage each other when, everybody? Daily, while it's still called today. You can't have wonder if you're not living for today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Few more time wasters keep us from a life of wonder. Idleness. Seneca says, Why do you delay? Why are you idle? Carpe diem. Unless you seize the day, it flees. Solomon had put it this way the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Now, this one, this one's really well said. Seneca talked about vice and how vices keep us 
from wonder because they, they waste our time. Look, look what he says. I think this is really well written. Vices do not permit us to rise anew and lift our eyes for the discernment of truth. They keep us down and we are chained to lust. Solomon also spoke a great deal about vices. I just chose one. This is alcoholism. He said, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of the eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Last one. Seneca says this. Here's a time waster, busyness. Finally, everybody agrees that no one pursuit can be successfully followed by a man who is preoccupied with many things. There is no such thing as multitasking. Um, about 500 years earlier, Jeremiah put it this way, message translation, slow down. Take a deep breath. What's the hurry? Why wear yourself out? Just what are you after anyway? But you say, I can't help it. I'm addicted to alien gods. I can't quit. Boy, that one hits close to home, doesn't it? I'm addicted. I just can't quit. So let me just ask you, are you going to waste time on a smartphone? Are, are we going to stay stuck, absorbed with worries and consumerism and time wasting? If we do, we will miss out on much of the amazing, wonderful blessing of God's redeemed community. Let's close with a short action plan, very quick action plan. Four things that I should do if I want to enjoy life as God's wonderful church. Number one, I need to reckon that we are a redeemed community. Think about this truth. Cement in your mind that church is not merely a building. It is not just a series of programs. It is not a commodity that I consume. It is the beautiful body of Christ. Never get over the wonder of that. Amen? Amen. And that leads to some personal application questions. If, if indeed I'm reckoning that we're a redeemed community, that takes me to these questions. Are there relationships I need to mend? We're a redeemed community. Do I need to mend relationships? Am I serving in a ministry? Am, am I giving myself? We're, we're one body. Am I acting like it? Have I joined a church? Vesting myself into a local church? Am I, speaking of vesting, am I giving fully? I don't mean just tipping. Am I giving financially to the work of God's church? Do I commit to life group or, or Bible study or do I just... Or do I just kind of go as a consumer when I want to? In my leadership, ask yourself this one. In my leadership, do I serve? That's what it means to be redeemed community. Number two, to enjoy life and the wonder of God's church. We need to reckon we're redeemed community. Number two, do the great commission. Remember Mark 16 we read earlier? Later he, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he'd risen. Then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Jesus commissions Christians to share the gospel, the miraculous true message that Messiah died and is resurrected, that salvation comes by, by faith to everybody who trusts in Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. Now, if I commit to that, to doing the Great Commission, that brings up a couple more tough questions. Ask yourself this, with whom am I sharing the gospel with whom? How about this one? Am I showing anyone what the gospel is and how to share it? By the way, just real quickly, as you're thinking these through this week, think about hospitality. That In, in this particular day and age, that appears to be a key to, uh, to each of these. How am, I, how am I using hospitality? Number three, to enjoy God's awesome church, we've got to operate by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit which comes from God. 
so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. If I'm going to understand the truth, it can only come from God the Spirit. His power must be at work in me instead of merely my own fleshly effort. So let's each analyze. Ask yourself this. In what ways am I not thinking, acting, being empowered by God the Spirit? In what aspects of my life am I really operating by the flesh? Number four, if you want to enjoy the wonder of God's church, you do all for the glory of God. This is the only way to find delight in in Christian living is to do everything for God's glory. The, the, The opposite is to act like it's all for my pleasure. That is a dead end. If I seek God's glory, I get fullness of joy included. If I seek my own pleasure, I become a miserable idol because we make terrible gods. Which takes us to our final application question. In what ways am I acting like a church consumer instead of a glory giver? By the way, as you're chewing on this one and you and the Spirit are working on that this week, let me offer a little hint that I have found. One of the best ways to get to the heart of that is look at um, the things about which I complain. So if I, look, if I look at what I complain about, that's often a, an insight for a beginning for me to figure out where I'm being a consumer instead of a glory giver. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for, um, I pray for anyone, anyone studying with us who has never trusted Jesus. Listen, dear, dear person whom God loves, We have a miraculous, true message for you. God loves you so much that God the Son came to this earth and he died willingly on a cross. He paid for your sin if you believe on him. And he rose from the dead. He is alive. It is a fact. And if you will trust him, you are are incorporated into his body. You don't lose your personality and self. That's, that's nonsense. That's, that's other worldviews that don't hold up. You actually become completely actualized in him because he loves you. You follow him through death into everlasting life. If you've never done so, trust Jesus right now. Receive him as Savior. Believe on him. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand right now. If you're with us elsewhere, type in a note for the host online. If you're in the auditorium, raise your hand. Good. All right. Father, I pray for all of these Christians that we, that we genuinely live in awe and joy and wonder over your church. It's full of idiots like us. They're going to hurt us and disappoint us. Yes, yes, yes. But it's still like a beautiful diamond. And I pray we will spend, we will spend our energy turning it over and rejoicing and marveling at the greatness of what you create, every facet. In Jesus' name, amen.